Good morning, good afternoon, or good evening, wherever you are in the world. I'm Megan Baydorman from Team Salon, welcoming you along to a very special edition of our podcast, featuring none other than a world premiere from screenwriter Abby Morgan with her very first book, This Is Not A Pity Memoir. Abby is the creator and screenwriter of The Split, Suffragette and The Hour, among others, and we were absolutely privileged and honoured to have her at a recent salon with us at the London Library. So, here's Damien and Abby. Enjoy. Welcome everybody to this very special salon with the fantastic Kit Duval and Abby Morgan and all of you, welcome! Uh, it's very nice to be back here at the London Library. We're here in December with Mawson Zeddy and Miriam Margulies. Was anybody here for that that night? The lovely Miriam, who was crunching away on um, onions. <laughs> it was a very fragrant interview. Um, and, um, and I asked her, or somebody from the audience asked her, if she could change anything about the world right now, what would she change? And she just said, this government! And it was absolutely brilliant. You should watch the moment. Um, and it's the perfect day for it, of course, for changing governments. And I hope that you've all done that today. Yes. The Suki bind is in bloom and change is in the air. Um, welcome back to the London Library, which opened in 1841. Don't steal any of the books. You can borrow them if you remember. And members include Bram Stoker, who researched Dracula here. And there's a brilliant display um, of the books that he used and the books that he wrote in. Um, when he was here for that, and of course Virginia Woolf. Um, it's not as fancy as the library I went to as a child in Lanarkshire, obviously. <laughs> no, but um, that library got me here, and um, I feel very, very, very much love for that library and for this library. Um, and for the librarians, are any of the librarians in here tonight, or have they all run off? They've, they've, been, they've been allowed to go home, it's that time. Um, anyway, so we've got two fantastic memoirs this evening. I'm really excited about them. We seem to be doing memoirs more and more at the Salon, and there are more and more brilliant memoirs being published all the time. And tonight will go on our podcast as well. So if you want to share the love with other people after this evening, please do so. So uh, my first guest is the BAFTA and Emmy award-winning playwright um, and screenwriter who's given us all the gift of Christy Carmichael. <laughs> Thank you <laughs> for him. Um, I didn't know that he really was Dutch until I started stalking his Instagram <laughs> and then discovered that he really was Dutch. Um, so um, um, Abby also, of course, uh, wrote uh, The Iron Lady and Suffragette and my favourite, The Hour, which I absolutely loved and I want to ask you lots and lots about. Um, this is her memoir. This is not a pity memoir. Now, it is intense. A lot of it takes place in the hospital where her husband... Jacob is taken after he has a, a series of seizures. He has multiple sclerosis. He has a series of seizures. He ends up in a coma and he spends 443 days um, in that hospital. Um, and Abby is there for almost all of that, it seems like. And during this time, she herself is diagnosed with a really aggressive form of breast cancer. When Jacob wakes up, he doesn't recognise her. And in fact, she is a different person in lots of ways, it seems to me. Somehow, with the help of a large cast of family and friends, and also, of course, the NHS, 
she makes it there and she's made it here tonight. Please welcome for the world premiere of This Is Not A Pity Memoir, Abby Morgan. Hi, hello, welcome. Hello, hello, hello. Thank you very much for coming here and doing this with us. I'm, we've been, I've been talking to Jocasta, your editor, about the book for ages and I got the proof and I started reading it and I fell in love with oh. you and Jacob. Um, oh, actually, and so. the love that you have for each other. It is a love story oh, after all. Thank you, thank you. Will you give us a wee reading and yeah. then we'll have a chat and then we'll take questions. This is the first time I've ever read this book out loud, so please forgive me and I'm not an actress. So, okay, so this happens... Um, I'll just tell you a bit about how Jake and I met. Jacob and I met. It is late 2000. I have the tail end of a shitty cold. But a girlfriend, one of my best friends, is having a dinner for a birthday. She is a very good cook and I like to eat. She is bold in her choices of menu and guests. I drive over, weaving my way through the elegant grid of West London streets, a beautiful miniature jewel box of a house in a neat Georgian terrace with faces, some familiar, some new, caught in candlelight and enticing conversation. A long table runs from living room to kitchen, covered with tablecloths of newspapers and a mismatch of chairs, like some chaotic, brilliant Lewis Carroll high tea. I am out of my depth. There is an elegance to the way my friend lives with which I cannot compete. I am awkward and over-eager to please. And I'm getting over a cold. Standing in the kitchen, a shaven-headed man walks in, I immediately peg you, an out-of-work actor. You have questionable facial topery, a Shakespearean <laughs> beard, a thick green pullover, which I think to myself must be hot, but I don't notice you properly again until midway through dinner. A runner of cooked prawns still in their shells has been spilled chaotically along the centre of the long table. We stand, cracking and peeling and fiddling to retrieve small pieces of fishy meat. It is decadent, fun, silly, Rich. These people are educated, privileged, sophisticated, bohemian. At some point, we are told to grab a chair with the urgency of musical bumps at a kid's tea party. Sitting opposite me is a young woman getting very drunk. Let's call her Caroline. The tall, dark, foppish man to my left ominously whispers, she does something in TV. He touches my shoulder, compliments me on my shirt, his finger running close to my collarbone, touching my skin. Years later, I will realise this was an attempt at a pass and that if I had had more confidence to see for what it was, my life might have been completely different. The shirt is cheap and spotty with a bow tie close to my neck. On our second anniversary, Jacob will admit that it made me look like an air hostess. <laughs> <clears throat> what do you do? Shakespearean beard is sitting opposite me. Say it. Isn't it funny I should get emotional at this bit? <laughs> say it. I can say it. I get paid now, almost paid now. I can say it. I am almost earning money. A decade of waitressing almost behind me. I'm a writer. Not another fucking writer. <laughs> Caroline, the drunk girl now seated to his right, is proving to be a real charmer. What the fuck do you write? You can do this, you can say this. Um, uh, I'm, I'm hoping to get the rights for an amazing book by Ruth Picardy. Wow, you smile. Uh, what, for stage, TV? Uh, for a film, I, I want to adapt it into a film, I reply. Picardy. Isn't she the one who died? The drunk girl butts in. In my mind, she says, is slopping her drink. In my mind, 
but then, I, as I now know, the mind plays tricks. I read her column, Ruth's column, before I say goodbye, you reply. Yes, now collected into a book, I reply. God, the drunk girl looks to me, to him to pour him more wine. But you ignore her. You ignore her and look directly at me, smiling, looking directly at me. They were brilliant. Ping. There is this deep, internal ping. Perfectly crafted, poignantly revealing, Before I Say Goodbye was a series of wittily written emails and columns first published in The Observer by Ruth Picardy as she dies of cancer in her house in North London. And you have read them. I fucking hate those pity memoirs, the drunk girl again. <laughs> Why? You're still smiling, looking back at Caroline now, yet smiling. Caroline, yes, that was her name. This drunk, obnoxious, wine-swilling girl. She may have been none of these things, but in my memory, Caroline smiles back at you flirtatiously. Maybe she even puts her hand on your arm, her gaze holding yours. Why share your fucking misery? Who wants to read that? I am so embarrassed. I am found out. Me, I want to shout. I want to read it. Me. But I don't. I go back to the man on my left. He has good hair, thick hair. Genetically, that would have been useful. Hair is notoriously thin in my family. And as I'm talking to the good, thick-haired man on my left, I can hear you arguing with her, charmingly defending me. It should be said I never got the film rights. After, after candles have been blown and cake has been eaten, after, when the music is louder, making the floorboards vibrate, I take my moment to leave. A sister of an old friend and her boyfriend want a lift. Is there room for my friend? He was going to get a taxi. I can't remember answering, but I must have agreed to give him a lift before, because you, know, you are now sitting in my front seat. You are still holding a bottle of beer and ask if I want a drink. I point out I'm driving. <laughs> I'm not sure if you're pissed, but you are warm and funny and charming and you listen. I drop the other two off somewhere near Gospel Oak. I take a left onto the Holloway Road by the Odeon Cinema, not yet gentrified with waiter service and guacamole chips on our boards and reclining seats. And as I take a left, I'm laughing so much I momentarily lose my bearings. And gently, you reach out a hand, touch the wheel, steady. Ping, ping. We stop outside a pretty suburban house and you invite me in for a cup of tea. You're staying with your, your mother. The glass ornaments on glass shelves in the neat cream living room, the giveaway. I can't remember what we talk about. You're between jobs, assisting a friend who's shooting something, an out-of-work actor. <laughs> of course, I think. We say goodbye, neither of us making a move, me tripping over the step as I back out through the front door, flustered and nervously laughing, with no promise of ever meeting again. Yet I drive home giddy, my flat ten minutes away in a grubby part of northeast London that never comes up. Lubavitch Jews or prostitutes standing on every other street. It's a crisp, dark night, 2 a.m. London is asleep. But as I take a right along an icy road, I know well I skid. The car goes round and round like some cognitively slow Torval and Dean and it until it comes to an enormous graceful stop, perfectly, placed in the left lane facing my way home. In years to come, I will retell this story. I will catastrophize the car spinning in a terrifying figure of eight. I could have been killed, I will say. I could have been hurled into scrubland, never to be seen again, I will add. It's a miracle I survived. My life flashed in front of my eyes. And as the story grows, I will tell myself it is a sign. When I eventually do get out of the car, I see I've laughed so much I've peed a little on the seat. <laughs> <coughs> The next morning, I call my girlfriend and tell her I have met the man, the man. By lunchtime, I've matched my first name with yours. Cry, chef, ski. 
By evening, we are married with two kids. I wait for your call. <laughs> you never call. I call my friend, the sister of my friend, fake a story that I need your email. Email is just coming in, sent and received on the bright blue, blocky Apple laptop, more Fisher Price than iMac, that sits in the corner of my desk. You've asked if you can read one of my scripts, and I am keen, what, sorry, one of my scripts, and I'm keen to help a young out-of-work actor with aspirations to be a screenwriter. I can sense her smiling on the other end of the line, knowing this is a lie. Mm -hmm. uh, no, I, I don't want his number, I reply. I need to write. I'm better with words than in person. They are good at hiding my shattering lack of confidence. I get it. I email you. Nothing. A silence that is deafening. I am heartbroken. I am ancient. I am over the hill. A few days later, I'm working on my laptop at my desk, and then suddenly from my inbox, ping. You are having another seizure. Will you excuse me if I get emotional, just because... <coughs> You are having another seizure, tonic-clonic seizure. They normally last one to three minutes. Over five, they are classified as a medical emergency. This one has come on suddenly. The consultant is trying to explain. They need to take you for an MRI immediately. A swirling mob of icy consultants, doctors and nurses are surrounding you. A curtain is yanked, separating you from us. But I can see as they pull it closed that you are writhing, arching your back, as if mid-exorcism, screaming in agony. You have been in hospital for exactly 10 days, seven days. Something is wrong, Abby, something is wrong. I should have listened to you. Why didn't I listen to you? Seven days. I have sat for seven days feeding you raspberries, not wanting to disturb the nurses, not wanting to try and pin one down as they flip past to ask why they couldn't find out what is wrong with you. Then I remember Baz, a friend of Jacob's from university, a doctor once told me that those who shout loudest are heard. Is he going to die? She's very pretty, the consultant, blonde, a nice woman. In another life, I would have liked to have been her friend. I have teenage children. I need to prepare them if he's going to die. Judith, Jacob's mother, is standing to my right. She is lost and anxious and so fragile, trying to keep up, trying to understand what is happening. Later, I will hate myself that she heard me ask this. I need to prepare them if he's going to die. The nice consultant's eyes fill with tears or I think they do. In my mind, I am commending myself and my calm stoicism, my strength that is so brave, so brave that I have moved her to tears. Mm. She pauses, is trying to compose her words. Shit, this is serious. This is not a film. If it was, I would have cut this scene. Yes, he could die, imminently. You didn't die. Some days, often, there are days when I wish you did, you had. But you didn't die. You do not die. Uh, how do you feel now, having, having read it out loud? Do you know, I come from a family of actors. You think I would have got my shit together, really? But um, <laughs> yeah, it's very weird. I mean, I, d I chose not to do the audio book because it's just—it's quite hard, and it's—I feel that's really uncool. You know, I feel like I want to get on top of it. I feel like I don't want to indulge myself, but it's still—it's still quite a living thing, mm. you know. And I think that's what the book is. It's still quite a living thing for me. 
it does feel like, you know, when, when you had told me about it, I thought, well, you know, with memoir, sometimes we want a degree of separation yeah. from the events. Yeah. Distance enables us to have this kind of perspective. But yeah. this is a situation that's not, that's not over. I mean, you no. know, he's, he's home and he's living with you and your, yeah. your kids are there and, and you are recovering and, yeah. and, and, and getting well still. So it, did, was there ever a moment where you thought it's, it's too soon? Yeah, that's so interesting. I mean, to be honest, the book is actually finished. Um, I finish it in May. I mean, I, it kind of finishes summer, autumn 2020, but I take it into sort of May 2021 just mm. to kind of give it a little update. Um, so in a way, it's, it's so much has happened in this last year. It's exactly, yeah, just over a year. And um, I f you know what I feel? I feel I wanted to capture this moment. I, I just, and actually I just, you know, I used to read about J.K. Rowling reading in cafes and just being so impressed because, you know, I'm very methodical. I get up at nine. I write the way through the day. I live in a very... But actually, with this book, I was, you know, I was caring for Jake. I was hanging out with my kids, caring for them. They were caring for me quite often. And, um, and so I was, I was doing that thing. I was, you know, I started... I used to start at, like, 10, 11 at night. And right. I would just... Just it poured out of me, and I wrote it very, very quickly. Did you write it when you were in hospital? Any of the no, times you were with No, I, I wrote, so the first 100 days in hospital, I kept a really meticulous diary. Right. And then after that, it became so apparent, I had so much material. Mm. You know, I was recording Jake, I was recording myself, I was... What do you, you mean know, recording? Like, uh, I, I would put him on film, I would record my thoughts, I would um, try and capture moments with my kids, I would send memos to everyone. You know, we had a WhatsApp group, Jacob Gets Better which we, you know, entitled the first day, Jacob Get Better, and it was just all our families, yeah. about, you know, Jake's family, really, and, and our kids, and we were writing constantly, you know, four, five, six times a day, we were writing to each other, and so I was constantly Googling, I started to pull up my... So I had this incredible resource of work, I suppose that's the mm. best way to describe it, but I didn't start it, I started it in October 2020, why? Why did you start it? Why, because why, it was why? actually incredibly hard. I think I'd reached my point. Jake had come home um, sort of properly in the September and nobody had told me that actually rehab of someone who has a, if you've ever experienced, I don't know if you have, but if you've ever experienced any kind of brain injury, mm -hmm. you know, they're incredible. I mean, the NHS is so incredible at keeping you alive and so incredible at getting you to a point. But, you know, they only have so many resources and you're suddenly out in the world and you bring home this stranger and who's actually his rehab's not done. I mean, I remember my son saying, mommy's come home too early. Mm. And I was like, but there's nowhere else for him to go. So I, I sort of wrote out of this desperation to get it down. I think to get my emotions out probably. I mean, you know, I'd I mean, read you all the- you were having therapy obviously. Yeah, oh my God, this, did this I have a, therapy, was, yeah, yeah. Of course, I was like, at, yeah. at one point you say, it's such a cushy to have a therapy. And I I'm live like, in North I'm, London, I mean, come on. You I'm, I'm surprised you weren't in therapy 24 seven. I'm surprised you didn't move the therapist. Yeah. And, and then at one point you said, you know, my therapist comes back early from maternity leave. And I was like, how selfish of her to have a baby <laughs> while you're going through all this stuff. But, but you know, so, so you're getting something from therapy. What, what, were you conscious when you were embarking on the writing process that it might in any way be valuable for you, whether you published it or not? I genuinely didn't write it to publish it. Yeah. I mean, I know that sounds a bit faux because I'm pretty mercenary. I write, you know, I'll meet you and I'll think, there's a, oh, there's a six-parter on you. Um, <laughs> so I'm not, it's not, but with this, I just, I, I, do you know, the main thing is, and you know, the, the script oscillates between direct, me directly talking to Jacob and referring to him in the third person. And so, mm -hmm. and I'm, and I actually, I was, I was talking to him. You know, I, it's very weird, but it's very weird to be ghosted by someone while 
They're alive. They're alive. And so I, I was almost talking to the ghost of Jacob. You know, I, it sounds weird, but I felt like the ghost of Jacob was to my side and he was going, what the fuck are you doing? Come mm. on, come on, what the fuck are you doing? This isn't me. And so I think I had to write to him. So I was writing for him and I wanted to get everything down and I just felt this. And also it was very frightening. There were moments that were bleak, you know, really bleak and... Oh, it's I can't wait for you to come on. This is going to get funny when you come on. Um, um, Kit's really great, honestly. I've had some great nights with Kit. You're going to have fun. Um, I want uh, to say the book actually is very, very funny, even at its bleakest moments. I mean, the, the, yeah. the moment where you think, I can't cope anymore, you're driving over a bridge, you think about throwing yourself off the bridge, and then you're like, yes, but there is another episode of Grey's Anatomy that I haven't yeah. watched. <laughs> And you just kind of, you know, and you it's, drive home and you watch Grey's Anatomy. Yeah, yeah. It's all little things that it's keep the you little alive, things. you know. It's the little things. And I think spooking, being spooked is a major part. You know, I think if you've ever been close to the edge of anything, you know, mm. close to the edge of sanity or close to the edge of your mortality, certainly with Jacob, you know, it was, I think the day that I had, I, I felt like that was actually, they had told me that Jake would be in a wheelchair for life and impotent for life. Mm. And um, I knew that that was going to be hard for him. Mm. And I just had this kind of, it was, and I, I've, I have huge respect now for anyone who has had those feelings because I always thought that it was more of a tussle and a wrestle, but it was just a light switch went, yep, that's going to, yep, I know what I'm going to do. Mm. And it, it, the feeling that still spooks me is it, it, the feeling was the temptation of sinking into a warm bath. That's what it felt like. Mm. And thank God for Grey's Anatomy and thank God for my brilliant sister who works with me, who, you know, was on the end of the phone. But, um, but, you know, but they are ridiculous. And also I was incredibly aware of how lucky I was, my privilege, my kids, my family. You know, mm. I wasn't... But when you, when you bring someone home, you know, you have the means and needs test thing. You know, it needs... If you can swallow and if you can breathe, you tip into means. And, then the, mean, and the means tested is a very small amount of money. It's 23000 that you have to have somewhere in your retinue, and that can be within the context of a house. And so... Um, you have to do it yourself. And so the other thing, I would be disingenuous to say, I wasn't necessarily thinking that there was a book in it, mm. but I, I thought my original idea, I, I totally fantasized about doing a play and the play was going to be amazing and Jake was going to be at the heart of it and I was going to get my best friend who looks just like Jake to play him with Jake and we were going to have the, the, you know, I was going to get all the therapists on with other actors and it was going to be really kind of Evo Van Hove, sort of like cool. And at the end, Jake would get to play, you know, f the Friends theme tune yeah. on his ukulele and he, everyone would applause for him. Yeah. And then COVID happened. And so I think when I was first writing, I was kind of just getting it down as mm. an idea that I'd get it down, I'd get it down because I couldn't make a, a play out of it. You, you said when you were talking just then about it, you said the script and I was like, it's not script, it's yeah. a book. Um, yeah. and, um, but, you, but you're a screenwriter by trade yeah. and, and, a, and a playwright. So it has that, it has that energy. There's loads of dialogue and yeah. obviously you're great at that. Um, but, but what you do that's quite interesting for me as a writer is that you put yourself on the page making choices. Yeah. Um, and you talk about your inner editor a lot yeah. of the time and you talk about that, you know, I would cut this scene, you know, for, there's a point Part way through the book, where you say, "I think I'm, you know, I might cut the whole thing of me having cancer because what's that? What's that bringing to the story?" Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, you're you're so <laughs> repetitive. Yeah. You're so repetitive. Back in a hospital, yawn. But you know, but you're absolutely merciless about it. 
um, in a way that I think a lot of writers of prose... I'm really shocked because I didn't realise how brutal I was, actually. Well, you are. Um, well, I mean, thank, thank you. I'd like to thank all the brutal editors in the world. <laughs> I mean, David Nichols is here, who I know very well, and uh, he's been through both screenwriting. And, you know, screenwriting is brutal. You know, you're yeah. walking... You walk through thinking, I'm just about to deliver the greatest thing that since Billy Wilder's, you know, Some Like It Hot. And you can see the other writer waiting to take over from you Ooh. as you go out. And, you, re you know, so... I guess I was always ready to catch myself, and and it's surreal. You know, I think you know the the book the book is also about identity yeah. and about what happens when your identity is profoundly questioned. Not only when Jake first woke up, it became apparent within the first month that something wasn't right. He was he was warm and loving to everyone, but he kept on asking if I could wait outside, and um, and it took to Valentine's Day and the kind of delivering of the cheesy bright red heart to him, think, you know, balloon thinking you'd think it was funny for him to declare that I wasn't his wife, which actually was true at the time, because I, as I say in the book, I was his partner, I wasn't his wife. But, you know, that was a technicality. He basically didn't know who I was. And so that shook my world. And, yeah. and I think the, the book is also an act of resistance, defiance. I think it was two fingers up to it. Yeah. I think it was probably two fingers up to him. Yeah. And oh. that's something I'm now working my way through. But I definitely think it was an act of resistance to go, yes, I do exist. And then when the cancer had happened, which just felt like, as you said, it felt like such a naff plot point. I was like, I cannot have cancer in this well, movie. You said that. I didn't yeah, say I that to you. Like, yeah, but, 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 but anyway, like, there we are. You no, know, I was just like, this is a really bad plot point. Yeah. I mean, you know, respect to anyone who's gone through cancer, but I was like, how do I make that work on a film? You yeah. know, so um, I was a kind of irritated by that. But it also felt like my very existence was being denied. You know, I, you know my mortality... Well, it was threatened. My, it was, it yeah, was, my, it was yeah. an existential crisis. It was a real existential... And, and my mortality was threatened, and it was just... And so I think the surreal is always there, because, mm. you know, when I was... I mean, I talk about it, but when I was, you know, when I was told about cancer, all I could think was, why was this fantastic oncologist sort of stroke cancer surgeon wearing an Avengers badge on his suit? You know, I was yeah. like, why are you into the Avengers? And, you know, so... You know, there was always something working against the kind of terrifying sort of... Is it velocity the right word? You know, I just felt like I was spiralling towards... Some, everyone was going, yeah, you're, you're over, it's over, yeah. it's over. And, you know, we all think like that as we watch, you know, Phoebe Waller-Bridge do amazingly, and we go, shit, my career's over. But, <laughs> but you know, they, we're talking about life. You know, yeah. life was over. And suddenly I was like, why did I worry about all the other shit? Actually, life is the thing, and who I am is the thing. And so I went to where I, I've gone to my entire life, which is words and writing. And writing mm. was this amazing company this and I'm so grateful I mean you see I, it was a golden thread that pulled it was you the through. golden thread that pulled me through but also I had a career you know it's you know I had access you know I didn't send the book to a hundred publishers because I'm within that world anyway mm. so I was incredibly fortunate that mm. I was indulged and someone read the book and listened. So, but I, I had that there. I'm so used to, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm delivering a script tomorrow that I was writing right the way up to the 11th hour. And I don't even, I don't even read my scripts before they go in. Right, because you know they're going to get shredded or because... because I, <laughs> no, because the doubt will kick in so much oh, I won't send it. Really? So I send it and as soon as I press send, I wait for them to go, it's shit or it's great. Yeah. And then I'll go, okay, we'll talk about it in the meeting and then I read it. Okay. So I, uh, yeah, so I don't look at anything until it's out. But but because I'm very, I, I like my audience and I like my editors to go, okay, this is not what's working. And most of writing is rewriting. Yeah. So I guess I was sort of being editor and writer at the same time as creating this. I wonder though where that places you in your own life. Mm. Um, if it, if that exteriority means that you're not always there. That's really interesting. I sometimes think I'm over there. 
Like I, I, you know, I've gone out for drinks with, you know, the brilliant mums from my kids' school, and I, as I'm driving, I'm always like, dial yourself down, dial yourself down, listen, don't talk so much, dial yourself down. So I think Have I you always felt like that. Always felt like that. I've always felt like, don't be so giddy, calm down. You know that sort of voice going. Um, Were you told that? <laughs> don't, don't look at door kids no, in the front row. I think we had an actress mother. You know, yeah. I think if you have an actress mother, it's a bit like, look, you know, she's an amazing woman. But, you know, you, you're, you're used to being in the presence of So the you're the, you were the audience? I guess so, yeah. yeah. I guess so. I guess so. Yeah, and I mean, you're quite literally the audience. I mean, I must yeah. have seen every kind of reproduc bad reproduction you ever want, I will <laughs> have seen. Because, you know, we were always going to see my mum in Bodicea or... Macbeth or, you know, other... Yeah, I guess, anyway, I'm going off piste. But, to come back to it... Um, that sense of being present in, yeah. your, in, in your own life. I mean, I wonder also, that there are definitely points in the book where it seems to me that it's useful for you to be able to step outside of yourself. It's almost like, you're like, I'll deal with this later when I can write about it. Then I'll know that it's real. Yes. But right now, you know, it's, it's, it's all just too much. And your identity does change in loads of ways. I mean, you go from being a well person mm. to being an unwell mm -hmm. person from being an, an independent person to being, to being a, a, a carer. And something I'd never thought about before, because, you know, of course, your now husband is, is alive and was alive at the time, but you become a single parent, effect, effectively. You, mm -hmm. you, you talk about being, sec, you know, being used to being second in command and now you're having to be the captain and you don't like actually, it. Actually, yeah, and I mean, actually, that's very in interesting about absent. I don't think I put it in the book, but I, I asked my children during this period, tell, tell me your five favorite days. Uh, that you've ever had. We were d having dinner together and they told me their five favourite days and I realised I wasn't in a single one of them. So they were like, God, it was that amazing time when we went to Alcatraz and Dad took us across the bridge and I'd be like, yeah, I was in LA working on a movie. Or, <laughs> yeah, it was amazing when we were in Croatia and we were on the boat and I was like, yeah, I was filming in the middle of nowhere. Or, mm -hmm. you know, and I, so I'd missed a lot of my kids' life and one of the things... I mean, I was there. I was there for the holidays and the dinners. But, you know, I was very... Um, I was incredibly lucky with Jake. Mm. You know, I, I, Jake loves life, you know, yeah. he loves life. Uh, and he was an actor and he was one unusual as an actor because he loved everything around. He liked the acting, but he loved everything around, which was like the kids and the fun and the parents and the, you know, so I was able to very kind of, you know, in a sort of very singular way, focus on my writing. Mm. And actually what it forced me to do was to engage and inhabit and be be in the present actually much more and the main thing is be there for my children because mm. they were 14 and 16 when this happened and yeah. um, I just it was so frightening it was so awful to have to you know not one not two not three times have to sit to the children and go dad might die tonight we need to go in that I had to just go the only way we're going to get through this is if I sit in it and don't sugarcoat it mm and just go, it's happening. So I, st I stayed close to the facts, I stayed close to them. Mm. And you also use a lot of humour about it in the yeah. family. I mean, when, he, when he comes home and you think, you and the kids think it's a wee bit early, they start to call him half-dead dad. Yeah. Um, we, don't, we don't sit to his face though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's so sweet of you not to <laughs> sit to his face, but publish it in a book. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so how do they feel about it? How, how, how do the yeah, people, because when, when we write a memoir, we, you know, it's, you know, it's got me, moi and I in it for a reason, yeah. right? It's kind of all about us, but, oh but it's also God. all about them too, Yeah. you know, and you can't write it without them. And no. did you share any of it with them? Yeah. How did you do that? So I, 
I mean, I pit, they're very used to me pitching ideas. I right. mean, they definitely are my first audience. They always have been. Really? Always have been, yeah. Always from very early on. What do you think about this idea? Does that work for you? What do you think about this? And because I'm often, you know, I'm working, you know, particularly if I'm sure, you, you know, if you're doing, um, working in America as well, but writing over here, you often start at 10 at night. You mm. know, you're doing the calls. So they'd often, you know, I'd be walking past their bedrooms and the lights would be on and they would call it computer face. Mm. And they'd be like, and I'd go, well, I've got this thing. I don't know. I've got a hardware. And they would be very good. So they've always been that as a sounding board. So I, I, I brought it up at the table and said, look, I'm thinking, I've been writing this thing and I'm thinking it, there might be a book in it. What do you think? Mm. And, um, and I guess, you know, did I, I didn't think about it as a script. I was kind of, maybe later, but um, uh, so how do they feel about it? They have been... Did, they, did, you, did you say you can take bets out? Yeah. Right. So and I, did they? Um, they asked me to take two small things out. Okay. And there are two or three things I didn't put in. Mm. Um, I didn't talk about the times that... I mean, we, I, I referenced one, to, but yeah. I didn't talk about certain things. Yeah. Um, and I've tried to protect the people who are... You know, I've, you know, so basically there was a kind of growing... So my sister was the first person to read it, um, in cha chapter by chapter. So I was sort of delivering it every few days, weeks, you know. And then I gave them to the kids when it was complete. And I said, listen, I want you to read it and um, tell me what you think. And it's interesting because my daughter has quite, quite severe dyslexia and my son is a reader. My daughter read it overnight, stayed up, oh, up overnight and read it. And my son just sort of idly read it at some point, you know? Mm. And I was kind of chasing <laughs> after him, but chasing after him thinking I'll, I'll ask him because she, he'll have read it first. Uh -huh. And she just kind of casually went, yeah, I read it. Like that. And um, they both, they get it mm. because they lift it with me mm. and they get me and they, they, and that ethos and they get the importance of don't be afraid about exposing yourself in your life. And I think that came from their father right. because one of the things that's interesting is Jake, you know, there's, there's probably m several more chapters about Jake in the last year, but Jake has been incredible, you know, has made this quite extraordinary um, recovery in the last sort of six months, really, like we, beyond anything we'd hoped for. And so I asked him, he doesn't want to read the book and he's very aware of it. And I said, what do you think about it? It's difficult, isn't it? And he went, yeah, but you write about everyone else's life. It's right, you write about your own. Yes, and, absolutely. And I think that's the ethos they took, but I was mindful of them. And there's one or two things now, there's one or two things that I think I would have tweaked a little bit now retrospectively, but actually, They've been pretty good. I'd say they've taken it on the chin mm. and they're proud of it and they're conflicted, but they're proud. They're very proud of it. Um, but they're still in it's it's still it's very active. It's very alive. You know, mm. you well, when you live with someone who has had a brain injury, you've live you live with profound personality change mm. and, you know, profound physical change and cognitive change. And those things, you know, I, I, I'm saying to a, to my most despairing saying to a doctor, you know, I've, I've been told that the Capgra will never change. The Capgra is the a Capgra, syndrome so the Cap, So Jake developed Capgra delusion, which meant that when he woke up, he thought that he, it often is related to the person closest to you, you think they're a, uh, an imposter. So it's the illusion of doubles. And you think that you're the real person must be someone else. And weirdly, it can, it can happen... Um, it can happen around an animal, a pet. It can happen around a house. You walk into the house and you think, this isn't my house. This is a different house, but it more often happens to the person you're closest to. Mm. And um, 
and so, you know, you know, I, I said to this doctor, you know, it's got this cat where they say it's not going to go. And he said, I said, you know, they see it often in dementia patients. And he said, well, you know, dementia is all about decline and brain injury is all about repair. Mm. And I don't think I realised how incredible repair was and how incredible the brain is as well. Mm. So, um, but it's a process of repair. And so it's, it's been eerie and spooky and frightening and funny and they've been through every inch of that and they continue to go through every inch of that, mm. you know. And so, uh, and so we're here at this point now and this is a very interesting process now, you know, sharing it with the world because I'm very keen to hold them and go, we're doing this, what do you think? Do you want to come and be part of this? And they are, you know, they're coming with their friends for cocktails there and they're going to, they might sit at the back there and they're, you know, they're, they're, they're kids, they're teenagers. And mm. I, you know, I, I, I say at the end, I want you to go off, go have fun, live life, smoke weed, just go do good things, you know, yeah. go have fun now, you know, because yeah. I think that I wish, I wish this hadn't happened. I wish this hadn't happened, but it has. And I am infinitely proud of the way, and I hope that it will give them some strength and resilience for the rest of their lives. I really do, you know. I can't wait till they come to your events and ask you questions. <laughs> <laughs> They're going to be so good. Yeah. Um, questions now for Abby. Um, yes. Uh, one there, one there. Oh, that was, a, that, was a, that was a dead heat. We'll go there first, please. Yes, thank you. Just wait for the mic. One sec. Sorry, thank you. Um, it's testament to your artistry that you're thinking about how a book turns into a play or a film. Um, is there anything that you're prepared to share in the conceit of this room that you left out of the story that is worth telling but doesn't necessarily fit within the constraints of the book? That's a really interesting question because you do talk early on about uh, wanting to cut things, not that you don't want to share them because you think mm. they're not right for sharing. That's a very different issue and I wouldn't ask you to do that. Mm. But in terms of like, you know, what is the function of this thing with, within the story? Mm. The, the, you're making those decisions all the time mm. in, in the book. You just share a lot of them. Yeah, I mean, um, I mean, there's, you know, the, inevitably there are tensions and there are, there are, I mean, one of the things I would say is that there's something extraordinary and I don't think I've quite nailed this in the book, so it's difficult to describe, but I think about it a lot as I watch my teenagers fall in love and have their lives and create family, a bigger family beyond you, mm. and, you know, and, and perhaps love people in a different way to you, but that will become their centre. And what's very odd is that when someone who is loved by intergenerational members of a big family, you don't realise that each person has a very unique relationship mm. with you, and I had completely colonised that my relationship was the most primary mm. and one of the things I think was hardest to understand and accept and it's been a good thing to accept and grow from is that we're owned by a collective when tragedy and crisis happens like this and everybody has a part in it and so I probably didn't explore that as much as not even that I wanted to but that that felt very private and still something I'm trying to work out and then the, the other thing but it's it's more what I did I forgot to put in was that when my sister first read it she said, it's great, but you forgot to mention about your cancer. And I completely forgot to put in about the cancer. So it's very odd. And even now, I have to go, yeah, I had, I had cancer. Because I still find it, I was, I think, in such an altered state that I still didn't know quite how to put it. So part of my irritation around the fact that it's a bad plot point is also because I don't think I quite inhabited and owned it. And I'm acutely aware a lot of people go through cancer. And I, I'm obsessed, I obsessively look at, you know, social media sites and then genuine, I'm in awe of people who go through it. And in, to a certain degree, I'm like, God, it's just, I felt like I was having it. I was sort of going through cancer as, whilst running a marathon at the same, it's mm. very odd to describe it, you know? 
Uh, yeah, you, you, you put it in that context. Yeah. I, think, I think we do understand it in that context. But I also want to say I do think you've successfully make it clear that you know, that Jacob isn't just yours anymore and that you're not entirely happy about that. No. And that's one of the many really honest decisions you make to yeah. share that, to reject shame around that. Yeah. Um, um, but, you know, his, I think it's his mother says he's loved by many people. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, you have to, you, you then move on to sharing him totally. with, the, with those people. Totally. Um, question there from the other John. I'm not sure I'm going to articulate this brilliantly. I, I feel like um, the analogy would be I'm about to ask a composer a question and I didn't pass my grade five theory. Um, <laughs> I found your reading very poignant and I think it was something to do with the style, the person, the voice. That's the bit I can't quite articulate. You're, you, you were telling your story to Jake. Mm. Mm. How do you know to use a diminished seventh at that point in the composition? <laughs> how, 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 how did you decide to write? Was the whole book in, is the whole book in that style or, or just that passage? Yeah. And how did, how did yeah. you decide to use that voice? Because I think what you capture, you know, what, what, so, so when Jacob first w w woke up, one of the hardest things probably for the first 18 months of him being home, really, actually, if I'm honest, um, was that he had no agency or initiation on anything. Mm. So one of the things I realised really profoundly was he just kept on looking and I went, what is wrong? And I got to the end of the day with him and I said, what is wrong? And I went to use the water machine in the fridge and he just looked at me and I suddenly realised I hadn't given him a glass of water all day. Oh. And it's not that he couldn't move and go and get the glass, or, but he, I said, would you like a glass of water? I went, he went, and I hadn't given him water. So... Uh, his function to, to be able to communicate me had been diminished so much, and yet my conversation with him was still going on and on and on, you know, and I, I couldn't talk to this version of Jacob. So I think it was so alive, and I think one of the things that I, you know, and I'm very grateful to the publishers now, because I don't know where It's a Love Story came, but it came somewhere in the mix of the publishing, um, but I genuinely didn't set to, to, to write a love story, and I absolutely love love stories. Mm. I just didn't realise I had one of my own. I genuinely didn't, because I don't, you know, I, 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 I'm quite brutal about myself in the book, I think. I yeah, wasn't perfect. Are. I was really imperfect often, and, you know, it wasn't a perfect marriage, but it was very alive. And mm. when the day Jake collapsed, he was my favourite person, and today he never stopped being my favourite person. He's still my favourite person. And so, um, I, you know, you, you talk to those people. I mean, I remember one of the things that, that um, Justine Piketty, I, went, I actually went on to adapt Justine Piketty's um, novel, If the Spirit Moves You, which is a beautiful, sorry, memoir. It's an mm. amazing memoir. I must love memoirs. I didn't realize. Anyway, it's an amazing memoir about her journey to try and reconnect with the voice of her sister. And I, you know, one of the many films that I wrote that never got made, but one of my best works. Um, <laughs> But one of the things she says is, she said, you know, a relationship doesn't end when someone dies. Mm -hmm. And I held on to that when Jake was absent, so profoundly absent from himself. Mm. So the book is very alive with a conversation. And one of the most extraordinary things that has happened for me, f probably not so much for the children, but we're getting there, is that I've got back the other half of the conversation now. Mm. So because Jacob can talk, Jacob is funny, Jacob is witty, Jacob is brilliant and clever again. And but he's not himself because he's not pissed off with me enough. Yeah. And I know that he'll be, that that part, that's the difference. He's, he's always happy. So does that make sense? Yeah. Well, listen, thank you for 
thanks letting so us much. into the conversation and for sharing the memoir with us tonight. I can't tell you how much it's been thanks so, so much. special. Thank thanks you. very much. Thank, Thank you. Thank you, Abby Morgan. I'll take that a little bit. Thanks for listening to our evening with Abby Morgan. We hope you enjoyed it. If you'd like to pick up a copy of This Is Not A Pity Memoir, it's available now from your local indie, of course, or you can support the podcast by buying a copy through the Literary Salon shop on uk.bookshop.org. You might also want to keep an extra beady eye out on the Literary Salon podcast over the next few months, as we'll be sharing the other world premiere from this particular salon, which was with the brilliant Kit Duval with her new memoir, and we really can't wait for you to hear it. It was an incredible evening. Her memoir's out in the summer, so we'll be sharing the podcast then. As always, thanks for listening, and join us again soon. Mm-hmm.